So today we are in a series. Uh, we are continuing in a series. We're in week three of our series, He Said What? It's the idea of the hard statements of Jesus. Now there's some hard statements that Jesus made. Last two weeks we, we looked at a few. I've come to bring a sword and not peace. That's a difficult statement because aren't you supposed to be the prince of peace? What does this mean, Jesus? Dividing the, the dividing line that is the gospel and how it can sometimes separate and be a great barrier. And Jesus understood that, that through the simplicity of the gospel, that it could be a very great divide. So he taught on that idea. Taught on the idea that we are supposed to sell everything and give it to the poor, take everything you have, give it to the poor. Was he really saying to this rich young ruler that he should take everything he has, give it to the poor, and then finally he'll be assured of heaven? Or was he challenging the perception that someone who had followed all the religious rules and who was obviously blessed of God by reason of their wealth, was he challenging the, the perception that heaven is so much larger than the religious structure that we've made it? Those are the last two weeks that we covered. Today we're going to cover something that I wasn't going to cover today. I was actually going to wait and cover in a week. But because of coronavirus, I thought it'd be something we should talk about. Jesus has a hard statement. He says very simply, do not be afraid. In this culture, in light of what we're facing, I think this could be one of the hardest subjects Jesus has ever brought to humanity. Can I, be, can I be honest with you as a pastor? I get off, get off my notes for a second. I'm frustrated with this. It is incredibly, and I'm not, I don't even want to talk about the politicization of it. I don't want to talk about everything. I'm frustrated that we have a group of Bible-believing Christians who have the Word of God as their foundation and believe more that Lysol and Purell will cure their issues than the blood of Jesus. I'll be honest, I'm tired of holding back a little bit. There's some things I want to say that I probably shouldn't say, and so I'll reserve, no, my wife already told me, she already told me, I can't do that. She's not here, that's not right, you will get me in a lot of trouble. The light, okay, I got to get back to my notes, this isn't good, all right. The, okay, if you have your Bible, turn to, this is not okay, if you have your Bible, if you have your Bible, turn to uh, let's read, Luke chapter 8 and go to verse 40. Luke chapter 8 and verse 40. The light of our current, current culture is doing nothing but fear-mongering. And there are so many religious leaders, churches, thought leaders, buying into the idea of fear-mongering. When we understand the gospel gives us a place to stand on this sure, this sure footing of faith. I wonder if Jesus would have canceled service. I don't know. I mean, we might have to. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to mislead anyone. If, if it comes to that point where they're really putting pressure on us to cancel service, we will. We will be good, we will be good stewards of our time and our facilities, and we will be good, we will be good citizens. All right? We have to do that. However, I'm not going to do it out of fear. I'm not going to do it out of pressure, just pressure, pure pressure, peer pressure. That's not going to happen. In the light of this curtain in the closet, if you're telling me not to be afraid, Jesus, I know you're prepping me for something real, so what is it? My mind automatically runs to the number of Bible verses that tell us not to fear. Generically, there's this concept that there's 365 verses in the Bible that say don't fear. That's half true. There are a lot of verses that say not to fear. Jesus said don't fear many times. 
But my analytical self can't get around the idea that there are facts of life that tell us there is pure, unadulterated reason to fear. Jesus didn't say, don't fear, because he's going to hand you a basket of puppies. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, don't fear, because the diagnosis is going to be clowns and balloons. Jesus said, don't fear, because there's a real adversary coming after us. Jesus said, don't fear, because there's a potential for real hardship that could come our way. We're going to read about one story here in just a minute. But when Jesus mm, gets in the mix, life changes. Luke chapter 8 and verse 50. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. Now this verse could be read, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of this, I'm going to work backwards a little bit, but this verse could be read about three ways. It could be read in a passive, very soft, declarative statement, please don't fear. This verse could be read in a moderate command, you shouldn't fear. Or this verse could be read in a definitive command, do not fear. We have to decide which one it is. Is Jesus saying in this statement, in this broad scope, broad brush of a statement, is he saying, please don't fear? Is he saying, it'd be nice if you didn't fear? Or is he saying definitively, do not fear as a command from heaven? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and we're going to jump back up. Uh, we're going to jump back up to verse 40. And if you have your Bibles there, it says, uh, so it was when Jesus, I'm actually using my Bible. I shouldn't have because I can't read it. I always forget this. I don't know why I pulled it. It felt, it felt more like holy today that I needed to bring it out. Anyway, I know the Bible's on my iPad, but whatever. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitudes welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, a man came named Jairus, and he was the ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him, begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. Get the context. Here's a dad, has a little girl, she's 12 years old. She is literally dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. As he went, the multitudes thronged who? Jesus. We see in the next couple of verses, you can skip through them very quickly, but 43 through 48, we see a woman press through the crowd. She gets through to where Jesus is at, touches him, grabs him. She's a woman who had been hemorrhaging. She'd spent all of her money, done everything she could do to fix the bleeding issue. Here's a man whose daughter's on the verge of death. She's 12 years old. Here's a woman who can't stop bleeding her entire life, doesn't know how to fix it. She walks up to Jesus, grabs the hem of his garment. He says, virtue has come from me. Who touched me? Now, in this scenario, there's these narrow corridors. If you ever go to Jerusalem and if you ever go to Israel, you can see this, where there's these narrow corridors of the cities that they used to walk. Particularly, this was probably, I, th I think it was Capernaum. I, I have to check again. Uh, but they're walking in between maybe house to house, and it's very narrow co corridors. Only about 50 or 60 people could gather around, and it would obviously feel like a massive crowd. You wouldn't know who's passing you. His 12 disciples were part of that group. Jesus says, who touched me? Stops him dead in his tracks. Who touched me? Virtue came out of me. Something happened. She was healed. She grabbed the hem of his garment. She believed she was healed. We don't have time to get into her story. But then it moves on. It moves back to Jairus' story. 
While he was still speaking, someone came, verse 49, from the ruler of the synagogue's house. So while Jesus was still speaking, someone came to his house. He's dealing with this woman who's just been healed. He's talking of her testimony and her great faith. And in the middle, someone comes from this man's house and says, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher. Someone comes from his house with perilous news. Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble him. Now here's where we get the context of how should we read this verse. But when Jesus heard it, Jesus overhearing the conversation, here's Jairus, here's a servant from his house, says don't bother the teacher, your, your, your daughter's already dead. She was sick to the point of death, but she's already passed on. Jesus overhears that as he's ministering to this other woman in this tight-knit, crowded conversation. He says, do not be afraid, only believe and she will be made well. But in moments like this where the world seems to tell us there's no reason to have faith, there's no reason to believe, one statement is issued from Jesus, he's overheard this conversation, I believe he overhears our world's conversation, do not be afraid. There's nothing in this statement that makes me believe that it's a passive comment. Please don't fear. There's nothing in this statement that makes me believe that it's this sedentary command. I wish you wouldn't fear. There's everything in me in the way I read the story that Jesus says, do not fear. That when he hears the words that your daughter is dead, that he quickly spins on his feet. He looks the man dead in the eyes. His daughter's passed. She was just sick a moment ago, but today she's gone to the point, the brink of destruction. She's passed and he says, don't fear. Don't fear. Fear, only believe. And then he says, she'll be made whole. If we read on the rest of the verse, it gets kind of crazy, kind of weird, because Jesus is not the normal teacher. Jesus can't do anything like a regular rabbi, yet he has that same sarcastic, rabbinical teaching as all of the rabbis. And when Jesus came into the house in verse 51, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John and the father of the mother and the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, don't weep, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. You know, Jesus uses this line a lot. His friend Lazarus dies, and his disciples are being made aware of the news, and Jesus says, we need to go because our friend Lazarus is sleeping, and they're too dumb to understand what he's saying, and they say, God, just wake him up. You can tell the frustration when you read the story of Lazarus. Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. He's dead. And then his disciples kind of brush it off and say, well, it stinks that he's gone, but we don't want to go back there because last time we were there, they tried to kill us. Jesus pays them no mind and goes to that house. There he meets both sisters of Lazarus. And they, right in that moment, ask the same question. Where were you? If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. He responds, those who, who believe in me and they die. They don't die. They have everlasting life. The sisters understand, yes, we believe, we understand, we get it, but you don't understand. He's gone. We got the sweet by and by, Jesus. We get the future promise, Jesus, but today he's gone. Jesus comes to the mouth of the cave where Lazarus was buried. Stone's been rolled away, or I'm sorry, they're about to roll the stone away. He asks if they will, and they said, God, you don't understand. He stinks. Lord, you don't get it. This man's been wrapped up dead for a few days. There's obviously going to be a smell. He says, roll the stone away. They roll the stone away. Jesus weeps at the mouth of the stone, at the mouth of the cave. I believe he weeps. The shortest verse in the Bible way, if you need a Bible memor memorization verse, Jesus wept. 
I believe Jesus wept and he is frustrated in this story and he makes the comments he's making for the same reason, that standing before them was the living, loving God of all eternity and they had no idea what was about to happen. Think about it for a second. You have the God of the universe standing in front of you, inserting himself into your situation and you can't recognize what's about to happen. You don't see the big picture. Most of us in our culture and our society today are so trapped by fear, we don't see the big picture. All we see is the hopelessness. All we see is the peril. All we see are the news headlines. All we see are the ideas that it can't and won't get any better. In fact, that's what's read here. Go back to verse 53. They ridiculed him, knowing she was dead. Jesus said, don't weep. Jesus walks in front of a group of professional mourners and family members and friends weeping that this girl had died as was their custom. It's like breaking up a funeral. Jesus walks in the middle of them and says, what are you doing? I've already commanded this man not to fear. Now I've shown up on the scene and not one of you understands what's about to happen. Parallel this with the story of Lazarus. Jesus commands that body to come forth, to reanimate, for life to be brought into it, though it had been dead for a few days, and instantly, out walks this man wrapped and mummified. I'm sure he looked awkward to the crowd. In fact, Jesus even says, untie this guy. Don't you know who it is? But he was mummified, he was wrapped, he was preserved. He's set apart and he's anointed with oil, and I'm sure it looked like the most horrific horror movie you'd ever seen, that Jesus calls to Lazarus, come forth. And in that moment, this mummified man starts to waddle his way towards the opening, the opening of the cave. I'm sure his bodily fluids had begun to excrete out of the outer layers of his linen garments. I'm sure he looked and smelled like death. Yet Jesus looks at the crowd and says, what's wrong with you? Look at him. That's the one you loved. That's the one that died. Now untie him. We as Christians sometimes get to this point where we declare life and we have no way of untying our brothers and sisters because they still look and stink too much like death. So we fail to recognize what God's even doing in their life. In the same sense here, a family gathers, a believing family, a Jewish family, a family looking for a Messiah. He walks in their midst and says, she's not dead. Don't worry, don't fear, she's not dead. They ridicule him, knowing that she had, she had died. Verse 54. But he puts all of them outside, took her by the hand, called her, saying, little girl, rise. Then her spirit returned. She arose immediately, and he, he commanded them to get her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he charged them not to tell anyone. He charged them not to tell anyone. He charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. Now think about this for a second. There's a group of people standing outside your home, ready for a funeral. They're ready, they're ready to call it quits. Death has already come. It's knocked on your doorstep and it has won. Jesus comes through the door, breaks up the whole processional, says it's not unto death, and he's mocked on his way in. How often are we mocked in our culture when we say the way out of this virus, the way through this disease, the way over this mountain is the cross, and we're getting mocked just like these people. Oh, you don't understand. No, he's already declared life. 
The one who's already told us not to fear, declared life, that this isn't unto our end, has already come and shown up on the scene, and we can't even get it. And what happens? She's raised. She's raised to new life. The Bible says that what? Her spirit enters her body, and Jesus, when he recognizes it, says, get that girl something to eat. Wouldn't you like to be on that end? Get her a hamburger. Because I don't know how, how hungry she feels. He's about to find out. Her mother and her father are in the room. The loved ones are around her, and he tells them, don't, don't tell anyone. The family's gathered. Resurrection happens. New life is brought into context. And he tells them, don't tell anyone. Why? Because sometimes your miracle is just the fact that you're walking around. Sometimes your miracle is just the fact that you beat the odds. Sometimes your miracle is the success that you carry on your shoulders every single day. Why does Jesus tell this family, don't be afraid? Why does he shout in their situation, do not fear? Because he knew what he had at his fingertips, at his disposal, was the ability of God to resurrect any dead situation. No matter how terrible it looked, no matter how much it looked wrapped in grave clothes and dead, no matter how much the warners were there, mourners were there scoffing the idea of new life, he knew better. Our call in times of crises is not to point fingers. Our call in times of crises is not to drag people down. Our call is to bring the hope of Jesus, that he is the resurrection and the life, that in him is everything that we need to beat any disease that will come against us, that in him we can have the assurance that new life will come, that in him, no matter what the world says, that we have our way maker, we have our victory in Christ Jesus. But the command at the end is very simple. Don't go walking around with a big head when Jesus shows up. Don't go walking around trying to tell people, look how spiritual I am. Look how much better I am than you. I prayed, I believed, I tithed, I did all the spiritual stuff, and look what God did. And that might all be well and true, and maybe God blesses it. Don't go around with your big head. Jesus says, no, 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 just let the fact that the resurrection happened be enough. Let the fact that the resurrection happened be enough to calm fears, to silence the enemy to drive out those who don't believe. Let the resurrection be enough. We need to come to a place where resurrection is enough, where we believe in our own self that we don't have to prop up Jesus anymore, that we can literally say, in him is life and the fullness thereof, and I am living in that protected space. And you know what? If you'll follow me, if you'll let me, I'll show you the way. Sometimes I think in these moments, Christian get, Christians get on their soapbox and start beating people up rather than picking people up. Sometimes I think in these moments, we've done a really good job because we're actually fearful that we want to knock other people down with our religion rather than raise them up and show them the new life that's in Christ and share with them the miracle that we have experienced. Jesus told the parents, don't go talking about this. You know, he said it when it's Lazarus as well. This isn't to be for everybody. Just let the miracle settle into your community. Just let the miracle settle in to your culture. Just let the miraculous change of resurrection be what it is. Today, I believe more than ever that we need to allow the resurrection to be what it is. This would be a good Easter service. It's not. This is just prep. 
This is just prep to get us to that point where we can look at the cross and really understand what it's all about. This is just the prep work so that we can get to that place where Christ is center and the focus that we can get to that moment in time where we let all other things fall off and we focus on Jesus and that spurs us to action. Here Jesus says, stop it. Don't brag about what I've done. But he doesn't tell them, stop talking about me. It's about the miracle. It's about the instance. It's about the them and the there. It's about their issue. He says, yeah, yeah, other people will see it. It'll be great. But more than that, direct the attention back to Jesus. How often in our lives are we really good at telling our story, but not his story? How many times in our lives has he resurrected us and we're great at talking about what we run through and we're not very good at talking about his story? The life he gave, the sacrifice he made. Today, I want to encourage you, beyond all the hysteria, know that you don't have to be afraid. Know that you don't have to be afraid because the living, loving Lord of all eternity is standing right in front of you. And if we on our best day could comprehend an inkling of his character, we still wouldn't understand what's about to happen. We still wouldn't understand. We still wouldn't get the focus of what he can do in this terrible time. But also, learn in the midst of your miracle to be people who put him first to be people who let their light shine, not because they're so loud and proud, but because they're living everyday life in the glory of the Son of God, and it just oozes off of you. There's a place where we work our evangelism, and it becomes a notch on our belt, and it's nothing more than stat keeping, and there's another place where we work our evangelism, and it becomes part of who we are. It just oozes out of us because we've got so much Jesus, we can't contain it. We need to be the second part. We need to be the latter half that Jesus oozes out of us in such a way that we are, as I heard Diane say this week, dripping Jesus. I love that statement. We are just dripping Jesus on people everywhere we go. Today, I want to encourage you. People need more Jesus. People need more Jesus. They don't need more politics. I'm sorry it's politicized. I get caught up in that too. But they need more Jesus. Today, people don't need no more, they don't need more stats, this stat or that stat or this instance. They need more Jesus. They, didn't, they don't need more arguments on social media. They need more Jesus. They don't need more condemnation. You don't believe, you filthy, dirty sinner. They need more Jesus. You know, as a pastor, following the life of Jesus, it's not my job to point out where people are wrong and tell them, stop it. It's really my job to show them so much Jesus that they can't help but stop it. That we feed them so much of the character of Christ that the attitudes and behaviors of their heart fall off because they become so in love with him. Today I want to encourage you as we take this message of no fear to the world around us. Do it in a sensible way. Do it in a way that Jesus would, that you are that you are as cunning as a serpent, yet you are as harmless as a dove. That you come to people right where they're at in their everyday life and you interject and drip a little Jesus on them. Be proactive in your attempts to bring the gospel, but not in an overpowering way, recognizing that once they see your miracle, they won't be able to deny it. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to the word of God 
We thank you that as we come, Lord, that you are transforming lives, that you are putting us more into the character nature of Jesus. And in this moment, I want to ask everybody here and everyone listening online, if you don't know Jesus, the powerful Jesus that we talked about in the scripture, if you don't know the life-changing gospel of Jesus, it's really simple. The Bible makes it very clear that you confess that Jesus is Lord with your mouth and you believe it in your heart that in that moment you are saved. If you confess your sins and do your best to walk on his guidelines and his guideposts, that he welcomes you into the family. Every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to ask, do you need to meet Jesus today? Maybe you're scared. Maybe you're terrified. You don't know what life is going to bring when this life is over. You don't know what eternity looks like. You're not sure if heaven is yours. You can be assured today. You can be assured of heaven as your home, as if this life were already over. You can be assured. You can know that Jesus loves you, cares for you, and wants to be with you. A simple prayer makes that possible. If that's you today, whether you're listening online or whether you're watching here in our congregation, please slip up your hand. Maybe it's just you in your living room. That's great. Thank you for those responses. Thank you so much. That's an action step just to slip it up a little bit and bring it down. It's an action step to recognize, yes, God, I need you. So in this moment, we're all going to pray a prayer out loud, loud enough to where we can hear it with our own ears. And if you're listening by way of the internet, again, pray this prayer out loud to where you can hear it with your own ears. Repeat these words after me. Dear God, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for my sins. God, I will live for you the best I know how. And Jesus, I ask that you become the Lord of my life. God, I bring all my sin, all my shame, all my brokenness to the cross. Jesus, it's yours. Thank you for making me new. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time or the hundredth time, the Bible literally says that, he that heaven and angels rejoice. If you need a good church, this is a good one, and we'd love for you to plug in and be a part of our family. If, you're, if you can't, for whatever reason, be with us, please watch us online. We'd love to connect with you there. But we know that your spiritual life, this is a great and high moment when you've prayed to ask Jesus into your heart. But in this moment, it'll die out if you don't take the next proper steps. Connect with a family of faith so you can be built up in all things that Jesus would want to bring into your life. Amen? Thank you.